Diana Dorville, the podcast. That's okay. <laughs> so it's really fun. I really like it that it's really informal. Alors, um, I need to practice my French. I've lost my French in school, but um, like the same polka dot kind of spaghetti bowls. It's just all like I could carry on talking for hours. It's really nice to <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Diana Dorville, the podcast. Today I have the immense pleasure to have Davina Kat with me in London on a rainy Sunday morning. Davina is the epitome of a multidisciplinary artist. She's a writer, cinema director, model and contributing editor for any possible fashion and culture bibles such as the Financial Times, Vogue, Violet, the Evening Standard, etc. etc. Her culture across many disciplines is absolutely insane, and I can't wait for you to discover it through this episode. I hope you will enjoy it as much as I did. Bonne écoute! Hello, Davina. Hello, hello. I'm so happy you're here today. <laughs> I'm so happy to be here. It's such a nice way to spend a Sunday morning, um, very rainy Sunday morning <laughs> in London. Could you please tell your story? I'm actually trying to sort of narrow it down a bit. My background is very strongly journalism. Um, I'm still contributing editor for Vogue International. As the world has sort of changed, I think everyone has to kind of evolve and move forward um, with it. So that's resulted in working a lot with brands on collaborations, um, doing talks like this on a podcast. I work um, regularly with a series called Fashion and Cinema, um, which looks at the intersection of fashion, um, style and sort of costume in film. Um, and they do a program of talks and events where they do screenings and then in conversation events. So I do that a lot. And I also wrote and directed a documentary a few years back um, about saving British public libraries. Um, I love it. So it has ended up being quite a lot of different things. <laughs> um, <laughs> Remember when we, when we spoke, you told me you had a strong connection to the French Riviera with your grandfather, etc. Yeah. What is... What is it and what does it evoke Gosh, to you? Gosh, um, do you know, I just, I just love the, the place. It just sort of does something for me. Um, I can't really quite explain, but um, mm -hmm. my grandfather's a film producer in the sort of golden era. So I've always had, I think, just something inherently in me. My eye is drawn to that kind of old glamour and Grace Kelly and um, those sort of films. Um, he knew Hitchcock um, And obviously, like, To Catch a Thief is, oh, you know... It's one of my favourite films is, ever. Isn't it? Um, and I think what feeds into it... I mean, that film wouldn't be that film unless it had that backdrop of... That cinematic backdrop of, you know, Grace Kelly in the car, you know, and the style and elegance and sex appeal of the Côte d'Azur and the Riviera. Um, and also, I, what I also love about it is all those stories... I think I said that to you on the phone as well. Recently, there was a series on the BBC um, by Richard E. Grant. He's basically this sort of national treasure um, British actor, um, absolutely hilarious. And he narrated this series on the BBC about the Riviera and its connections to literature. And um, it was all about, as we spoke about before, and I think one of your other guests previously, which I didn't actually know, um, is connected to that. He spoke all about Fitzgerald and how he came to live on, um, well, around Hotel du Cap, um, and the people he saw there the became the characters, the Murphys and Tenders, the night. Um, and so I just love those connections, basically, how they're actually true life stories. Um, 
And I think it's just fascinating that so much of it was influenced by the war because after World War One, when there was a depression in America, that a lot of Americans moved to France as this quiet place where they could write um, and escape the turmoil of America. Um, and so they kind of settled in this place that no one actually knew. And I think Antibes only became known Absolutely. after the World War One. So there's just such an incredible history that I think a lot of people don't recognise. It's so now symbolic just with kind of film glamour, but there is so much behind that. Um, and I think that's why it has such a legacy and lives on as this area that people, you know, kind of dream about and, you know, has such voyeurism. Um, and I don't know, I just find something about it so sexy. And I went to Cannes <laughs> Film Festival and I sort of, a few years back, and I kind of stayed on for a bit. And I was in some really obscure, tiny hotel. And they just have like this collage of Alain Delon as soon as you walk in the kind oh, of yeah, like, yes, yes. hallway. And so I think it's just people are so, are so in there, people there are so kind of immersed in the history. And, and I, I think there's just something so sexy. There's, about it. there's definitely a soul in yeah, the, a soul, in the right. of France. Yeah. Literally. And, and, I think people don't, the locals there don't even realize it. It's just like it's it's ingrained. It. Yeah. It's, it's yeah, I agree. It's in them. Yeah. In a globalized world where different types of luxury and clientele are emerging, what is your vision of the future of luxury and culture industries? Um, I think this is a huge question. I think it's incredibly difficult to predict mainly because I think the biggest change that's going to happen in humanity, well, it's kind of scarily already happening, but it's going to be the biggest change in humanity that we've ever seen is AI. Mm. Um, and therefore, I think it's just so difficult to know how that will play out um, within the creative industry. I actually was having some emails with a new um, online startup um, about editorial And they were saying to me that it's already all done by AI and they just have an editor to oversee the final, the final kind of copy. And I was like, what? Like, that's already here. Um, and obviously that influences like image, imagery and hyper-realized imagery and what's real and what's not. Um, I think we're already, well, for the past however many years, we've seen this kind of um, interlinking between culture, fashion, art, media, multimedia, all of that, which I think will continue. Um, and I think we'll be more community, things in brands will be more community driven. Mm -hmm. um, I think hopefully there's always like a sort of pendulum swing and it's almost like which we've seen after the pandemic, this return to like handicraft and things that are personal and bespoke. Um, and I think hopefully that will continue and there'll be this massive kind of um, renegade from the kind of AI generic driven image to something personal. So I think like two sides will coexist. Keeping the human side. Yeah. Of Yeah, business. Yeah. So I think it's the only way for our mental health to survive. Um, as we spoke about when I just walked in, um, you know, so much of clothing and, you know, the things we do day to day affect our mental health. Um, and I think that we have to start living and working in a different way. Now we're in this technology um, and we're in this like strange, hyper-realized mm -hmm. um, world where you look at Instagram and it's like, is it true? Is it not true? 
you know, no one sort of knows um, what's behind the image kind of thing. I'm going back to the AI yeah. images. Yeah. Well, sadly, we're now with, you know, Gaza war and Israel. Yeah, yeah. And I'm seeing more and more, this, is, this really has an impact on culture as well. Mm -hmm. The world more and more divided. Yeah. With AI that derived certain photos and videos it's got that are, you know, online today, fake news generated by AI oh to, God, you so know, scary. change an opinion for one side or another. And this is becoming very scary. Yeah. And oh, anyway. it's so terrifying. It's only going to accelerate. I mean, let's not be doom. I'm trying not to be doom and gloom. So I have this <laughs> tendency to like scare myself. But um, I found this, someone told, someone said it to me the other day and it's like really good credit. It's, it's by like a German philosopher. Mm -hmm. I can't remember who it is. Um, and he said, in the past, the future always looked so bright. So what mm -hmm. he's basically saying is, you know, every time you get nostalgic about the fact that, the, you know, in the past, the world was so much better, it's like then they always look to the future being like, it's going to be so much better than we have it. So it's like... <laughs> <laughs> Let's cheer up. Yeah, yeah, sorry. I'm like, I Exciting. <laughs> so fashion and politics, do you think they are intrinsically linked or should they be isolated from each other? Okay, by the way, to anyone listening, and we're doing the heavy questions now, and then yeah, in a few questions' time, we're going to get to the lighter stuff about yeah. beauty tips. <laughs> okay, so, so fashion and politics. Okay, so this, again, is a really pertinent question um, because we seem to be... We're living in such a politicised world, and there seems to be constant politics and everything. That's, I think that is largely social media-driven, um, and everyone has a say about everything. Um, I think it's a really, well, it's kind of like a tricky question because intrinsically fashion and politics are linked because fashion's like a mirror of our times. Um, so for instance, one really obvious example is what we've just gone through with Iran and the hijab. Um, that's a really kind of obvious example of where fashion is will become symbolized by a political image and then if you look back at say i don't know like the 80 decade everyone looks back on they're like okay so bold shoulders power suits you know that hadn't been around in that time like color boldness um that's because the 80s was like that very kind of wall street catalyst era um and that reflected that but what i don't personally like is I, if it's just politicised for politicised sake, um, I think fashion is meant to be an expression of the times. Um, you know, it's meant to be bigger than just, you know, I don't like how everything now is very trend-driven. I think that's kind of ruined fashion. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's meant to be bigger than that. Um, but equally, I think that if it's politicised for politicised sake, which I feel a lot of it is now, it's like people just make a collection to make a, a political statement um i don't like that either and i think that's that's too kind of like a literal interpretation um i personally and i'm probably going to get in a lot of trouble for saying this but i don't personally like i think there was one season a few seasons back where like burberry did this pride collection it was just literally like pieces with stripes on it mm -hmm. and then i personally found i like what Dior's doing now but I personally found her very first collection where she she made the T-shirt saying we should all be fem feminists. I found it too literal, personally, for my taste. 
Um, but I like what she's doing now. I think that a lot of people felt that actually um, in the industry and I think she's evolved it and I do actually really like what she's doing now. And it's subtler and it's beautiful and it's still got that empowerment message but it's just a bit mm. kind of more, less kind of obvious. <laughs> so what does clothing represent to you? Uh, maybe a fantasy, a facade, a weapon, I don't know. Okay, well on that, I'm going to go big time with fantasy. It was always a fantasy for me. Um, I was growing up, um, well I was born in London, but I was growing up in the country mainly. And, and that was at a time when print magazines were everything. There was no Instagram, that, that was what there was kind of thing. Um, and obviously at that point in time, they were very much selling this glossy luxury fant you know, fantasy image. I think that you're always informed, it sticks with you what you grew up looking at so because i was in that i was in that era or that age group well that's what i was looking at the 90s supermodels i'll always be drawn to that i think one thing i do support now i don't like a lot of the social if i was like a young gen z person growing up now it must be absolute nightmare coming into a world mm -hmm. of all this curated image um and um you know filtering but one thing i do think is really good is the fact that they have this divert there's a diversity of like body image and different things for them to look at mm -hmm. um so it gives them like a kind of wider eye so i think i would go with fantasy but i think it can also be a facade mm. absolutely for myself anyway. <laughs> depends, depends on the days <laughs> Alors, next question um can fashion and couture mm -hmm. be a form of art Oh, a hundred percent. I think that, um, I love couture. It's like, I've gone through work and everything. I've gone to seasons and seasons of shows. Um, and now as like, everything's just got too much with all this like pre-collections and crews and this, that, and the other. Um, and then the pandemic obviously stopped that and everyone just kind of readdressed and was like, this is all too much. Um, and to be honest, I don't go to the show, the, the amount of shows I used to go to, I just, but the thing that I love going to and I always go to Paris for is couture. Um, and for me, personally, I'm sure there are people that don't agree, um, couture needs to be couture, it needs to be that like top of the pyramid, um, fantasy kind of fashion as art, otherwise, you know, What, what's the point kind of thing. It's obviously a huge conversation um, within the industry and it has been for a while. Um, how do you make it relevant today, um, especially with all the angst that we're all going through? Um, but I personally just find that some of the collections recently have been trying to make it like you can wear it every day. Mm. And I just don't really see the point of that. Um, I think that if you're a couture customer, you're going to be a couture customer, whatever mm. the environment is at the time um so i love it the more fantasy it is um one thing that really stood out which was last season um which i was in paris for is there was that particular era in the sort of 80s 90s where it really was theater which has gone now and that was basically christian lacroix jean-paul gautier um oh, yes and you know that was couture at its best kind of thing um, and very cleverly one thing that so what Gautier is doing now he's retired but he gets a designer um, a current designer to interpret to create a collection in in collaboration with Jean-Paul Gautier 
and interpret the old Gautier and his kind of vision um, from their own lens. And it's produced, he chooses interesting people that you wouldn't expect for a start um, that would necessarily be sort of Gautier inclined, their vision. Um, and it, it, for me, it's personally the most interesting thing going on at the moment. Um, and the late, the one before the last one he did was Hyde Ackerman, um, which no one could kind of see how that was going to work out because Hyde Ackerman is obviously very, um, he's tailored, he's very minimalist, um, sleek, and obviously Gautier is all like kitsch and theatre and everything. So it was like a completely um, a juxtaposition. Um, and it was incredible collection. It was, it felt like old couture, like in that way, even the models were walking and stopped in the middle of the runway. It was like in the old days where they used to hold up the signs with the numbers in the salon presentations. Um, and you'll have to go and look at it, but it was the whole thing was just curated so well. Um, and it was this brilliant merging of, you could see the Gautier theatrical influences, but then with the Haida Ackerman, very kind of tailored, sleek, um, and the models walked and the music was created and it was all done in this very kind of I don't mean you have to go and, for anyone listening I would really recommend going and looking at the show on YouTube um, and so that stands out as a as a couture thing where they managed to where he what he did he managed to blend like old school theatre with stuff that was somewhat wearable for today now how do you stay on top of your game so I think it's about staying curious and I don't know, I think it's roomy that there's this quote where, you know, it's about giving a bit of some space for magic kind of thing. Yeah. We're all a bit on autopilot because of all this social media and everything um, and because of stresses and having to, you know, sort of everyone's a bit in survival mode, I think. Um, well, I know I am. Also <laughs> um, the age of living and say you're writing, you know, you have to churn out these pieces online and stuff um, with not much time. Um, and thought um or time to think kind of thing <laughs> um on a practical level <laughs> i go for a run a lot i do a lot of exercise um and i also love transcendental med meditation i don't do enough of it but when i do it i feel really good one thing i just can't get over is these developments okay that when we were growing or when i was growing up um no one knew any of this sort of stuff we all just got on with our lives and you know bottled <laughs> everything up and i think these the, the developments in neuroscience, particularly showing the facts about all this stuff in the brain, Absolutely. very much within the last few years, are just mm. phenomenal. Okay. It's phenomenal, but at the same time, well, some people are not going to like this. Okay? Yeah. I feel like all these developments of, you know, around mental health, etc., mm. have created a generation, mm. us included, of sort of self-victimization, mm. you know, like talking about all the time, oh, I'm depressed and I'm not, I, I, I'm yeah, yeah. a very close person to me who is really medically depressed and she told me it's, it's not the same, it's like you, you, no, you know. No, I completely and, agree with yeah, that. But it's dangerous because you see, for example, our grandparents, yeah. they are much stronger mentally, physically than we are today. Do you know what, it's funny you should say that, I've, I've gone through so many stages myself because I've done a lot of therapy and I've stopped it all now and I've actually gone completely swung completely the other way and I've deleted all tr trauma experts as you know exactly. on Instagram I've deleted all these people off my phone um because I realized that you know what there is actually something to be said for getting on with it um mm -hmm. 
and I think it is too victim-y and I got into a victim stage from being too introspective. Um, it's it's comfortable as well, you know, to, to stay in that sort of, oh, I'm, it's horrible what I'm saying, but in, in the way that I agree, I have so many traumas, we all have gone through different things, but at different, you know, levels yeah. of, yeah. it can be very violent for some people, it's yeah. not. But I mean, at some point, you're getting stuck if you're staying in that comfort zone and yeah. not like getting on with it. Yeah, know? personally, I don't think it's so much, well, it's a bit our generation. I think it's the worst is the 20 year olds. I find them, sorry, I'm again, I'm probably being very outspoken um, and going to get in trouble, but I do find them incredibly whiny um, mm-hmm. and victimization for like something so minor that I wouldn't even sort of think about um and also what I don't like is I think it breeds um because they're the people who are trying to get Instagram careers um it's become this second career basically if you can't do the first thing you want to do become a mental health expert because you've had some trauma supposedly in your life and then you make a living off Instagram from being a mental health expert. Mm-hmm. I don't like that trend at all. I think that is dangerous. It's extremely dangerous. Um, but then there's so there's never been such a great divide between the age groups mm-hmm. as there is now, like mentally and where everyone else, where people are at with their lives because someone of that age can't have any understanding or relate to someone of my age of how things were and the landscape was when I was growing up. Um, so, and even if it's just like a few years difference, I mean, everyone's merged in ones in one way but then there's never been so much of a difference between the generations in another way and that's something I find really bizarre like I went through a lot of stages of that too I was like and that is a social media thing too Mm -hmm. yeah it's just very confusing and and even in the daily activities that generations do Mm. the mindsets the you know the 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 opinions and things it's it's crazy I see it even with my sister who's two years younger than me yeah, it's, it's even just a few really years, it's so different, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You see, for example, in the, in the whole history, before you had religion that was mm. organizing society, mm. then came the Industrial Revolution mm. and uh, and main ideologies as well, like Marxism, liberalism, mm, mm, blah, 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 mm, blah, that replaced religion. Today, since the fall of the Soviet Union, mm. we're literally, oh, there was capitalism, trials, tri- yeah. etc. Then the crisis 2008 and mm. I feel like today people don't believe in anything anymore like I think it's very human that we we need to believe in something that is bigger than us yeah, yeah. and today I, I feel like everyone is completely lost mm. because there's nothing driving us you know I think and so yeah, a lot yeah. of people become like sort of shaman and yeah, that, go to, uh, to become yeah, yeah, yeah. yoga teachers in Bali and it's amazing oh you know but at the same time you feel like everyone is just like we don't know where we're going you know, it's it's because there's not there's not that you know. High well, I think no. Do you know what I think? Everyone's lost. Um, I think everyone's lost trust and hope because yes. all these things are broken down. Um, I think religion just doesn't fit with this world anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and all these ideologies haven't worked. Basically, from this, this mm-hmm. I think personally, I do think I find Buddhism the closest thing I can hold on to these days, as Absolutely. in something as some sort of kind of higher source and guide um I've done a lot of that like going to healers and people that are sort of digging out past lives and stuff um and I found that the whole spiritual thing I sort of did a lot of that at one point it doesn't fit with this capitalist brutal world that we're living in it's too airy fairy um 
I like, I think the best thing I found is this neuroscientist thing where the science can back up the spirituality. For me, that's like helping me a lot. Um, Alors, first, three words that come to your mind when you think of Diana Dorville. Alors, um, I need to practice my French because I've lost my French in school. But um, okay, I love Diana Dorville. Um, every time I look at it, it really, um, I feel enlightened and, and sort of, it gives me joy. Um, so but much. three words, okay. I know this is a very kind of controversial word, but I would say chic. Mm -hmm. um, I'd say... Um, sophisticated and I would say joyful. Mm. Amazing. I'm so happy this is what I'm trying to convey to the patients. I, I have a question actually. You said chic might be controversial. Mm -hmm. Why? I don't know. I don't find it a disparaging word. Um, I love being called chic but um, Actually, I don't feel the negative side. I maybe mean, it's just cool. from a fashion review point of view. It's become a bit sort of like journey, you know, like that word that's also kind of, I think it's more from a writing perspective, a review perspective. Um, maybe not from a general day to day. Mm -hmm. If you're talking to people perspective, I personally love being called cheek. Um, I don't have a problem with it. Um, okay, I literally, okay, what, gosh, I think I said that when I first walked in, I stand by that, I'm going to invite Verushka, the model. Oh, yes. Famous model, Verushka. I think, like, all these Henry uh, Clark photos in, like, Jaipur, it's yeah. amazing. Yeah, horse photos of her, horse, horse the photographer. You know, she was, um, she was many times part of the mood board. I was doing was she? collection. Yeah. Was she really? And for shootings and styles. Yes. I was a lot of movement. A lot of shootings yeah. For, you know, I give it to, to the model. To yes. The yes. Have, yes. You know, yeah. I am. I, I'm, I'm obsessed. <laughs> I, I see actually she would mean it. And she, you know, she she wore sort of these loose kaftans in the clothing. Mm. And yeah. Um, I mean, the, there'll always only ever be one Varushka. Um, and she was before everybody. Like, gosh. I think I'd have Jack Nicholson. Oh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> I think he'd make it a real laugh, wouldn't he? <laughs> um, he likes up the party. He would like up <laughs> the party. Um, I think, okay, it just comes to mind because she's being talked about again a lot at the moment, but I think I'd have the photographer, Lee Miller, mm -hmm. because I just think, like, oh, my God, okay, because Kate Winslet is obviously playing her in this film that's about to come out, but I just think, I mean, can you imagine sitting in Hitler's bath? I mean, it's just... <laughs> You know, she was the photographer that um, was, she was the muse to Man Ray. Um, and then she worked for Vogue and then they commissioned her to go and be the photographer, war photographer. I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, that's okay. basically, can you imagine? She was a Vogue portrait photographer and yeah. there, there were hardly any women photographers at that time anyway. Um, and then she went off and photographed, like, the war, like, the, the um, when the Allies had, um, had liberated 
France and Germany, mm-hmm. she went and photographed the whole thing. I didn't know that. I thought yeah, she, yeah. she stayed in like the realm of... No, no, no. She, no, no, no. So she, she did that. She was, so she became a sort of documentarian as well as mm-hmm. being a sort of Vogue fashion photographer. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this was years before women did anything like that. Absolutely. Um, and then she was the one who she was photographing the camps as they got liberated to send it back, mm-hmm. send the images back to the UK mm-hmm. um, as it was happening kind of thing. And she went and she was in the apartment where Hitler had been living. And there's the very famous image that's been t- that's taken of her. She's in Hitler's oh bath, God. having a bath. I didn't know that. Yeah, because okay. the, so Kate Winslet is doing this film. It's literally coming out um, in a few weeks. I can't wait. She's playing Lee Miller and she also has produced and written it okay. um, with, the, with the backing of all the family and delving into all the archives. Um, so Lee Miller was sending all these photographs that she was taking in the real time mm-hmm. um, in, in the camps being liberated and everything um, back to the UK. And apparently, like, some of them were so harrowing that they couldn't publish them. Um, but I just, I mean, can you imagine going from being a Vogue fashion photographer in that era where that. women just weren't given the, mm-hmm. you know, it was a completely Maybe. different time. War photography is, like, literally, like, like, the kind of pinnacle of photography. I mean... Absolutely. It's, it's the most powerful. Yeah. 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 So I just, I find her just so incredible that she was doing that at that time. And, you know, fashion also, like, I remember having this discussion, once someone I was interviewing was a woman called An Dong. I don't know if you ever heard of her. She was a model in the 80s. Um, she's now a um, really successful art, uh, portrait artist, um, mm-hmm. went out with Julian Schnabel. Um, but I was having this conversation with her and she was like, when I, she's older. So she was like a model in the eighties um, with like Tina Chow and that era. And she was trying, she moved from fashion to art. And she was like, back in those days, fashion and art were very separate. Mm-hmm. It was even like that when I was growing up. Like if you worked in art, you were considered serious. And if you worked in fashion, you were considered yeah. frivolous. Still today. Still today like it's a bit. sort of snobbism right. from like the art world to fashion it's still there today yeah. obviously a lot diluted down but I, I do remember that when I first started out if you worked in fashion if you were working in fashion you were an idiot and if you worked in art you were serious so yeah Jack Nicholson her Verushka I think this could make quite a good quite a good dinner alors what is your favourite book film music and secret spot okay for this one again it's quite sort of old school but I think it's really special um So my favorite, it's not a book, it's um, a poem called Splendor in the Grass by Wordsworth. Mm-hmm. And it's, it wasn't even one of Wordsworth's most famous poems, but it basically is so, well, it's very relevant to, I think, what we're going through now as women, transitioning, you know, aging. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's basically um, about like look you know like how we all have to age and come to terms with it and looking at memory and loss and um read the poem it's amazing okay it's very short um but it was then taken by Elia Kassan who was obviously a very well-known American director it's basically about this it's lost love it's like they meet um and it's still for me it's like the most relevant film about like love and life okay music I'm going to be a bit more modern Um, I'm going to say I love everything about Florence Welsh. Okay. Um, I love her lyrics. Um, I just love her, what she's doing, her look, her vibe. Um, I think she's a proper songwriter. Like, her lyrics are so clever. They really yeah, speak to me. 360 artist doing everything. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
And I'm also going to say, what was it, the secret spot? Yeah, secret spot. Okay, so my secret spot is not in London. Um, my secret spot is when I grew up, some of my extended family live in the West, lived in the West Indies. Mm -hmm. And it was um, in Tobago where um, when there was like no one there. Like it was all the beaches, there was like it hadn't become modernized and commercialized, and there weren't all these hotels and everything. Um, and it's where like Norman Parkinson was living and taking a lot of photographs, like that famous photograph of Jerry Hall where she's in the swimming cap diving into the sea. That's taken in Tobago in the like 70s, late 70s, early 80s, maybe. Um, and it was when like shoots started to be outside and it was obviously like these beautiful surroundings on these beaches and there was just like nothing there at all and it was so picturesque um, and it was so pure um, so this utopia exists anywhere and it's like really like crazy yeah. <laughs> but thank you so much Tavina oh my god thank you we could talk for hours yeah exactly and one last question yeah. where can we find you social media or like all your social media is just um, at Tavina.cat very simple um, or my website. Amazing. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's it so was fun. a pleasure. Yeah, it took hours, yeah. And what a, a delightful you. Sunday morning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you for listening and on to the next episode. You can find all our projects, news and exclusive collections on dianadorville.com and Instagram at dianadorville. From your morning espresso to the red carpet. À bientôt.